Good morning. My name is Terry. I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is April 22nd, 1995, and my home group is SP101. It is a wonderful women's meeting on Mondays at 6.30, so if you like to go from work to a meeting and then go home, it's a perfect meeting because I get to be in bed by 8.30. <laughs> so uh, I, I want to thank the committee it, to, to inviting me to be a part of this amazing, amazing uh, conference. And it is an honor and privilege to be amongst all of you because I know that all of you, uh, I look out into the rooms and a lot of you are people that I have followed. Uh, a lot of you are the people that have been the leaders in my recovery. And so I, I wanna welcome uh, the people that are brand new because those are the people that keep me coming back and remembering that it doesn't work. And I also wanna, uh, I wanna, I wanna really, really, really be um, honoring the people who keep coming back. Because if you have years of recovery, that is years of showing up for life. And it is the years of having to be in these rooms and finding a solution when life is really tough. You don't have so many years uh, without having to go through life, which means loss of jobs, relationships, family, death, all, and birth. And all of these things are just part of life. And, and the, the focus of my speaking today is on step four and step five. And it is one of my favorite steps, and I'll tell you why. Um, but I'll just give you a little bit of a background of where I came from and what it was like and then how step four and five really impacted my life and, and made me uh, become the person that I am today and how I get to continue to keep coming back. So I was born in Hong Kong. I was born in 1959. Back in those days, they did not like baby women, baby girls, baby unicorns uh, <laughs> and 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 the thing is is that I was uh, from the the beginning of time from from when I was a baby to age 14 I did not know what it was like to be wanted needed and loved it was uh, I was put in a rural basket placed in a rural area of of Kowloon and uh, found and placed in uh, at the doorstep of a orphanage. And the orphanage there, their process is to go through and try to figure out who owns this baby. So they post it all over town and they do all these things that they do. And, uh, and then when they finally found that there was not anyone that was going to claim me, they put me in this book of, of adoptable babies. So, uh, the first parents that I had, they were looking for an adoptable baby because they had a baby child that they adopted from Castro Valley, California. And they were a Chinese family, and they did not have their own children. And they wanted to have another baby so that this baby could help play with the other baby. I came over from Hong Kong, and apparently they did not know that when you bring a child over from overseas, 
that there is different kinds of food, different kind of smells, different kind of culture, different kind of things. So uh, rice milk versus formula might have given me a bellyache, and I was hell on fire. My, uh, in fact, my grandmother, um, she, she used to say that I was possessed by the devil because I was, my stomach was so hard and I yelled from the top of my lungs to the core of my being and they could not comfort me. And that was just the way it was. And I remember from the very beginning that I could never do anything right. I was never gonna be like the daughter that they first had and I was, and 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 it didn't. I didn't even have anything to compare with. So it was just. This is life. This is just the way it was. And and so as I was growing up, uh, from being an infant to uh, I think it was four, I started going to the hospital on a regular basis because I had lung problems. I was. Uh, I think my lungs were premature and had issues. And so every October, I always went to the hospital for pneumonia. And they had, uh, they had these oxygen tents that they put people in. And I uh, had one of those oxygen tents. And, and I thought it was fun to be in the hospital because I got all this attention. And I would wrap my little feet around the poles and be swinging. And they'd be like, what are you doing? And, and I, I just thought the hospital was a lot more fun than my home. So whenever I had to go back home, it was horrifying. And, uh, and, and my, my mom was, uh, so they were an arranged marriage. And they, uh, my dad came from China, and my mom lived in San Francisco. So you can imagine the frustration that they had because they didn't like each other. And, and so <laughs> there was conflict in the home for that. And then um, for some reason, I was always the target, the target of her anger. And so they used a bamboo stick on my back all the time. And so when I went to school, there was always this, this uh, I have scars on my back from, from, and my legs because you miss sometimes when you're just so angry and so frustrated. And, and so I, I kind of lived that life until I was about 13, 12 or 13. And, and that's when I started, um, so they locked me in my room. I, I went to school, and then I would come home, and I would be locked in my room, and I would be given limited food. And so that was just kind of my life for about 12 years. And, and there's really a big gap of, of those years that I do not remember. I do not have any memory. And, and they say that that's good because it protects me. So, but when I was about 12 or 13, there was like this awakening. And that is that I was seeing other people in in school that did not have the kinds of things that I was going through. And, and then there was these groups of people that were way out there in the baseball diamonds and they were smoking these funny little cigarettes and they were doing all these things and they were having a good time. So I was like, what's going on over there? I think I'll go over there. And that was where I felt wanted, needed, and loved. Do you know that the first time I walked out to that little uh, baseball diamond and there's all these people, and, and people did not pay attention to me. 
But all of a sudden, this guy's like, he's got this little, I don't know, this little container. And he's like, hey, do you want to try this? And I was like, I don't know. What is it? And he goes, here, try it. And, and then he, he was like showing me stuff. And I was like, whoa. And, and, and I'd never, never uh, smoked uh, any kind of funny cigarettes. And, um, and, I, and, and these people were so nice. They were showing me the way. So I just, I was just like, okay, it's on. And then I went back to school, to class, and, and for some reason, my face just hurt so bad because I was laughing the whole time. And all of a sudden, I wanted to eat all these Oreo cookies, and, and I was shoving them in my face, and just, things were just hysterical. And, and that was my introduction to anything that was a mind-altering situation. When I was in, uh, when I was 14, I decided that uh, I was old enough to not have to deal with this kind of family life, and I went to the neighbors and I said, "I, I can't go home. I, I don't want to be beaten anymore. I am done." And they said, "Okay, well, we can't, we can't keep you, but we'll call the police." So the police came. All this other stuff happened, and I went through juvenile hall. I loved juvenile hall because I got three square meals. I got to socialize with people. It was fun, and they even they even taught you how to uh, cook. They had like classes where you got to learn how to sew, and then uh, they placed me into a foster home. And uh, the foster home that I went to is where the magic started happening, but I didn't know that. These people loved me, and they just wanted to embrace and take away the hurt. But I didn't know what the hurt was, and I didn't want to be embraced, and I didn't really like people. And so I just kind of looked at them and said, yeah, okay. And they were so verbal. Oh, look at the sky. Isn't that beautiful? And they were hippies. And they were, you know, we, we were in a Volkswagen van going up to British Columbia and, and taking all these little things and camping. And, and, and I was like, well, this is an interesting life. And so, so I went from where I came from to this, this thing. And, and my mom, she's, um, she's about 5'7", five, 5'8", five, and she's gorgeous. And she's this beautiful blonde lady. And I wanted to be just like her. And my dad, someone said last night about their father and being, or being in love with their father. And, and, and that foster dad, oh my God, he was so handsome. And I was so embarrassed. I was like, oh my God, I can't live with this guy because it's so embarrassing because, yeah. So anyways, <laughs> so they taught me lots of things. And I got to go to school, high school, and they were counselors. And uh, they were counseling another girl that was from the same grade that I was in. And they said, you two should be friends because you guys are the same age. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm Chinese. And so then people look at me and they go, oh, do you know my friend, <laughs> May? And I was like, who's May? Well, she's Chinese just like you. Well, being in high school and being the same age is like the same matchmaking thing. It's like, really? And, and um, she was popular. She looked like Goldie Hawn. And here I look like a Smendrick, just, you know, this tiny little thing. Uh, just I hadn't come into myself because I was in high school, but I was 4'11 and 70 pounds. 
And so here's this gorgeous woman, and, and here I am. And, and, and she was using, she thought, oh, this is a great opportunity because I'm going to take her everywhere. And if I take her everywhere, my parents are going to think that I'm the best. And they will trust that she won't get in any trouble. And I'll be able to do whatever I want to do. And so whenever Karen said that she wanted to go with Terry, they said, okay, have a good time. And, but they, what they didn't understand is that every time Carrie and I, Karen and I got together, we always drank. The first time I ever drank a lot of booze was when, you know, back in the day they used to have these things where um, you take the Coke can, you empty most of it out, I thought, and then you pour the rum 151 into the Coke can and then you drank it like you were just walking around on this earth. Well, I, uh, <laughs> I did not realize that... Uh, other people were only emptying this much out of their Coke can. And I was like pouring it all out, pouring the rum in, and, and, and then it was burning all the way down, and I was like, oh my God, this is, this is crazy. And, uh, and then I would throw it all up. I was a great date. Was <laughs> but then I started learning how to keep it down. And, and then I, that was just kind of like the start of my, it's on. The fire is on. And, um, and, and I got to avoid my feelings. I got to avoid uh, growing up. I got to just learn how to be with other people who wanted to party. And I thought, okay, this is it. You have two choices in life. You either have fun or you don't have fun. And the people that were having fun were drinking. The people who weren't having fun were not drinking. They were boring, stupid, and glum. So, <laughs> so, so I chose to have fun. So as things progressed, um, I graduated high school. I tried to go to college. And it didn't work out so well. But when I was going to college, there was this lady who uh, was this beautiful black woman who had, she looked like a model. She was tall, she was graceful, she looked dignified, and she always had a lot of cash. And, and so I asked her, I said, what do you do on the weekends? I want to hang out with you. And she said she was an entertainer. <laughs> well, I wanted to know about entertaining. So then she said, well, I don't know that you want to be hanging out with this kind of entertaining. And, and so as you can see, the, the road uh, clearly went into the wrong direction. And I started hanging out anyways because I was persistent. And I was like, yeah, I want to be, you know, I'm not a good entertainer. <laughs> that, is not my, that is not my superpower. <laughs> I would always try to entertain police officers. And, and, and then I would proceed to get arrested because they thought I was soliciting and I was like, I was entertaining. <laughs> it wasn't good. So this proceeded for a period of my time as well. And then, and then uh, when I was about 24, 25, I was really, no, actually I was 23. I was really sick and tired of that kind of a lifestyle. And my girlfriend, Karen, who I grew up with in high school, she 
got married in Corvallis, Oregon. And because she got married in Corvallis, Oregon, is there was this empty room. And in Corvallis, Oregon, you could get a condo and you can have a room for $100. And I thought anyone could make $100 a month. So I said, I want to move here and I want to be your roommate because you guys are fun. And it was a college town. Dimers. Get all kinds of beer for a dime. You got dollar drinks. And, and most of the time, you didn't have to pay. So I was like, okay. So it, it was great. Uh, and I was in that age bracket that, you know, you could still party and you could still look like you were in college. And, and, uh, and I wasn't. I was uh, just hanging out with people who went to college. And, <laughs> and I just drank like they did. And then all of a sudden, they started growing up and growing out, and they actually moved on to their careers. That's what people who go to college do, is they go to college, they get a degree, and then they get a job. <laughs> and so I decided, huh, how do I do this without having to get a real job? And, and I was always in the retail business, because I could sell anything, except for myself. Uh, <laughs> But I could sell jewelry, I could sell, well, I came to Portland in uh, 1987 and I sold rainbow vacuum cleaners. <laughs> Air purification systems. And I sold them for full price and I, I didn't know that you could sell them for cheaper and, and just get a little bit less commission. I just did what they told me to do, I did that. And uh, in that field, of direct sales is another layer of insanity. There was another layer of things that were introduced to me. And they were the cousins of all of my alcohol. They were the things that went into my veins. They were things that I did, you know, when they talk about, there's a lady who, when I came into the program, they said, you know, alcohol gave me the wings to fly, and then it took away the sky. And that is exactly how I felt with all these other mind-altering substances. And I went to a physical bottom with that. And I, uh, I came into the rooms in 1995, and when I came into the rooms in 1995, I did not know that I was an alcoholic. I knew from the core of my being that I was the other thing. I knew I was an addict, but I did not know that I was an alcoholic. But my parents told me, they said, you know, Terry, one of the things that, that we would like to do is introduce you to a 12-step recovery program. Because in between all of this, I also stole a lot. So whenever I didn't have enough money, I would just go steal something from Nordstrom's downtown, take it to Washington Square, return it, and get my money back. My money. <laughs> Wasn't my money. So, so that was the kind of scam that I had. Because in, that, in those days, that's what you could do. And, and so I, in between drinking and partying and doing all this stuff, I was stealing and going to, I went to every county jail, Clackamas County, Multnomah County, Washington County, jail, and Marion County. And so I went to all the county jails, visited them all. 
And, and then I found Alcoholics Anonymous in, in the Washington County Restitution Center. And they said, hey, you should come, you should sign up and go to this meeting. And I said, well, why would I do that? And they go, because they have cookies and coffee. <laughs> I like cookies and coffee. So I said, okay. So it was my first introduction to Alcoholics Anonymous. I did not know and get what you were putting out at that point, I got the cookies and coffee. But I was aware that there was something called Alcoholics Anonymous. But in 1995, I got arrested for the last time, and, um, and, and I, um, I, I was so sick and tired of being sick and tired. To the core of my being, I was so exhausted. And I, my ex-husband actually called my parents in California and said, your daughter's not doing well. Then he calls me up and says, hey, you're going to be pissed at me because I just told on you. <laughs> and you need to call your parents and let them know you're OK. So I said, hmm, all righty then. So I called, and I said, mom, I'm OK. And she says, tell me more. You know, counselors have a way that they ask these <laughs> questions. And then I started blubbering. I was crying, and I was like, I don't know. I just can't behave. I can't do anything right. It feels like I, I felt like it was a real moral issue. Me going to jail, me doing all of these things, I could not seem to behave. Everybody else around me knew how to go home at night. Everybody else around me knew how to continue working. Everybody else around me knew how to be responsible. And I had some of that, but I would always fall. I would always land in jail somewhere, and then it would kind of mess it up. So, so, so it's one of those things where I, um, my mom said, you know, I have a lot of people that we counsel, and they go to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'd like, you to take, I'd like to take you to your first meeting. So she flew from Sacramento, California, took me to my first meeting at the URS club, and it was the one that was by Flying Pie Pizza. She tells me as we're driving, she's like, oh my God, you are gonna just love Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> These people are gonna be like your family. They are going to help you through life, and you are gonna have all these tools, and she was painting this great picture. And then we're walking up the ramp of the old URS club, and I don't know whether you remember that old ramp, but the ramp was lined up with all these smokers and all these bikers, and they had chains and big old wallets, and they were huge and intimidating, and I was like, this is not my family. <laughs> this is not what I had in mind. And I was thinking she was crazy. Then we go into the meeting, and it's all smoke-filled. And, and, and she says, isn't this exciting? It's like, no. And I'm sitting, I want to sit all the way in the back, and she wants to sit all the way in the front. And we meet in the middle, and I said, oh, okay, right here in the middle. And then they proceed to go on to this thing of, is there anyone new? Has anybody ever been to a, is this anyone been to a meeting before? She's like, I haven't. She's raising her hand and, and they're going up there and giving her a welcome chip. And, and I was like, what is wrong with her? And she goes, come on. And I drag myself up behind her and they're like, oh, we are so glad you're here. And I'm like, mm, 
All righty then. <laughs> so, so my first day with uh, her and introduction to Alcoholics Anonymous was not that exciting. I did not fall in love with you guys. I was, uh, but I was desperate. I was desperate enough to go back to another meeting on my own. You guys gave me a schedule. You told me what to do. I went to meetings in different parts of town just to see, and there was people that I just didn't understand. I mean, they all looked like they wanted to beat me up. And, and, and so then my dad says, you know, you might wanna go to a meeting that is like at noon. People are working. They might be people that you can relate to because I was working. And because um, and maybe if you're going to those 10 o'clock meetings at night, you know, <laughs> that could have something to do with it. <laughs> so I said, all right. So I started going to a noon meeting. I went to the grotto. And I grew up with the people from the grotto, Paris and Rita and um, a lot of the old timers who, who just were so patient with me. They, I was, I still bounce. My legs bounce a lot like this. And, and then uh, Paris would sit there and say, you know, I am powerless over that person bouncing her leg all over the place. I feel like we're having an earthquake. <laughs> so, so they were able to show me what the steps were like in action. And uh, they would point out all the things they were powerless over. And then, and then there was a person who uh, I didn't know that you're supposed to stop drinking. I just knew that there was these steps. There was these steps and the traditions and people were talking about stuff. And then this lady, she comes up to me and she says, so I noticed that you never raise your hand for more than 30 days. I said, am I supposed to do that? And she says, well, you know, if you really want what we have, then you do need to stop. Because anytime you drink, you're actually kind of not here and you're not present and you're not able to get everything that we have to offer. I said, oh. So then they said, well, what do you have at your house? So I told them, well, I have all this, I have this great box of wine and I have all these bottles that are pretty so that if any of my friends come over, I could share and be a great hostess. I, I disclosed way too much because the guy, the guy went to my house and they took boxes out of my house of booze and said, okay, so this is what your house is supposed to look like. I said, ah, it's bad. <laughs> so, so then started the journey of one day at a time. One day at a time not drinking, not using, and one day at a time going to meetings every single day. In fact, I was so scared. I could not go home and, 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 and be in my house after work and sit in my room in my house and feel comfortable. I would have to get up and go to the 12 by 12 and sit there and just be and hear other people. But I could not be alone. I was so uncomfortable in my skin. I did not know what to do with myself. 
So I went to a noon meeting, I went to a five o'clock meeting, I went to the seven o'clock meeting, and then I went to the 10 o'clock meeting, and then drove all the way out to uh, Recovery Club Beaverton, RCB at the time, to the midnight and a half meeting. And then afterwards, everybody had breakfast. So it felt good to go out, be at a meeting, and then go have breakfast, and then I can go home and be at peace because that's what time you're supposed to go to bed when you're 35 years old, don't you know? <laughs> you can't go home and be a loser at five o'clock. And, and not only that, I didn't know how to not be anything else but uncomfortable in my skin. So whatever I could do to be out with you guys is what I did to stay away from myself. I was one of those kind of people who isolated in a crowd. If I'm with you, I'm not physically isolated, but I also didn't share what was going on with me. So then they said, you need to get a sponsor. So I got a sponsor. And uh, my first sponsor, uh, she, the, so she was the first person who talked to me. And uh, she said, hi, my name is Sandra. And I was like, hi. And then she gave me her phone number and she said, call me anytime. And I did. <laughs> Two o'clock in the morning, four o'clock, I can't sleep. She's like, oh my God, you need to uh, take a bath, read the big book. Now, I did read the big book and that did make me go to sleep the first, first year. Because <laughs> I was like, how is this even, I don't even understand how this preface, and she said to start on the first page. She, she was like, start with the preface and read it. And, and by the time I got down to the bottom of the page, I was sleeping. So then I got my second sponsor, and she had um, a sponsor, and Madeline, Madeline Holt was her, uh, her name, and she was the Oregon archivist, and she was a huge advocate of service, and, and she threw me immediately into service. She said, you're going to be part of PRASA. You're going to do the... Uh, uh, registration and you're going to pass out these little things and you're going to do this that and the other and I was like oh all right so here we are and she had two or three dogs and they always needed to go potty so she'd always say while she was in with the archives she'd always say here take my keys and take the dogs out for a walk so that was my service so all of a sudden I was involved all of a sudden I was in the middle and then she had me come to her book study and we that was torturous, but it was amazing. It was the two things at once. She would read, have us read one paragraph, and then there was like seven other people, and we'd have to talk about what we just heard in that one paragraph. And the other people had a lot more time, so thank goodness. But she'd say, so Terry, what do you think? And I'd say, I don't know. We'll get back to you, she says. <laughs> so that was the journey starting the big book and not falling asleep. And then my sponsor would have me go into working the steps. And, and I didn't know uh, that there should be anything to be afraid of in the fourth step. It was one of those things where um, I did one, two, three, and of course I was an overachiever. I wanted to do all my steps within the first six months. And, uh, and then I didn't know that right after you did all those, you start over again. <laughs> You're never graduating. So I 
went through uh, my steps, and, and that's why she said, you don't ever have to do anything perfectly because you're going to do it again and again and then again. And then I want you to start learning about the traditions, and you're going to start putting those into action. You're going to start putting the things that we... So the first year was all about reading how all this works and kind of doing some of the footwork and doing some of the writing. And then it was one of those things where they said, now you're going to have to have it from your mind to your heart. So I just, the first two years was about reading about it and trying to act like it, but the heart wasn't there all the way through. So then they said the mind, the body, and the spirit. And how I got out of the mind to the actions is my grand sponsor used to say, act as if. So you don't believe that this is true. Act as if. So whenever we were talking, she always had me know that, that I was powerless over people, places, and things. And she started me in the principle of practicing these principles in all of our affairs. Because she said, you don't want to go to jail again. And you don't want to have to go back to where you came from again. And so I need you to go deeper besides just alcoholism. I want you to start practicing this principle in every part of your life. And so then, now my grand sponsor, she was in her 80s, and she really didn't sleep. And, and she loved it when I called her at 3 o'clock in the morning. She was like, hey, what you doing? And she's on QVC buying all this stuff for people. So I didn't know she was practicing her own little situation, but I was helping by uh, calling her and saying, so I can't sleep. And then I'd tell her why and, and what was in my head. And she'd say, you know, that's not even your lane. So she's the one that said, you know, you need to stay in your hula hoop. And anything outside of that hula hoop is none of your business. And so for three or four years, it was none of my business. Everything I said, she said, none of your business. None of your business. I said, really? Feels like my business, because... <laughs> And she, she just kept on going. And, and so she drilled it into me that it was none of my business. And, and so one, two, and three was one of the foundations of what really brought me to four. And, and when I did my first four step, it was really, um, I didn't know how to do it. I just started writing. And I wrote all kinds of stuff, and, and I followed the format. And then I got together with my sponsor, and I told her all this stuff. And I was like, I don't feel the magic. <laughs> I, I heard so many people talk about they did their fifth step, and they are so lifted out of themselves. And I was like, I am not in that magical moment. But one of the things that I did do was I was able to, they always talk about that spiritual awakening comes in the educational variety, and that I wasn't going to necessarily have that burning bush. So I had the educational variety, and one of the things that happened is, is that as I gradually started telling you the truth and telling her the truth and, and being a part of, all of a sudden I was no longer isolated in my head, and that was one of the magics of, of step five. But when, so, so I'm going to just go back to step four. <laughs> 
because that's the way it goes. Um, so, so when they asked me uh, what is it that I really loved about um, the steps, because Layla had read uh, some of the things that were my favorites of, of four and five, um, I always thought that I was born evil, because my grandma said. And then I always thought that I was a defect, a big old blob in this world that was not meant to be. And 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 really, uh, uh, in 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 Hong Kong and China's way, I wasn't supposed to be. I should be dead. I should be gone. It didn't happen. And now I'm here, and I'm pissed. It's like now I have to deal with all this. And so. Then I read this, and it was talking about creation, gave us instincts for a purpose. So then the greatest thing that happened when I read, read that first paragraph is, is that all of this instincts are natural and God-given. And it also made me feel like, okay, so my want and need for material and emotional things, security, it's not bad. That will never go away. But it's about being able to bring that balance. That pendulum swings from here all the way to over here. And it's about being able to live in that balance and being able to be comfortable in that balance. And so it was very thorough in, in four and five about how we, can, um, how we can take our instincts to the extreme. And when it talked about a business with no regular inventory usually goes broke, I was thinking, now how does that apply to me? So I decided that, okay, so now Todd, I'm gonna take this off. <laughs> Whew. I have nothing else to take off. <laughs> We were talking about instincts, right? <laughs> so, so, so then I was thinking about um, when we're, we're doing that fact-finding and fact-facing process. I was like, what do I need to know? And my grand sponsor really helped me with that. She says, you were born in a perfect way. But the world and your experiences changed it. And what we need to do is unearth who you are. You are not what your grandmother told you that you were. You are not what you acted like when you were drinking and using. You are not those things. This is about being able to find out who are you and what are some of your natural skills, gifts, and capacity and what are some of the things that you take to the extreme that harm others? And so I knew that one of the things that I took to extreme is, is I never, uh, I, so when I was younger, I always stole food. And I always stole whenever I needed cold medicine. I'd go to the grocery store, I'd steal that. I mean, I was a little kid, I was just stealing whatever I needed. But as I grew up, I didn't know the difference between my needs and my wants. Those were never satisfied. I did not know how to discern the difference between my needs and my wants. And that was where the problem was. 
And so in being able to go through all of this, the first four step was all about those resentments and, and the anger and the frustration and the fear and being able to face those. And I was a great, I don't know whether I could say I was a great Al-Anon person, but I was a great person who made every excuse of why you did the things you did. Oh, my mom, she didn't mean to be all beating me up and doing all this stuff. She was really angry because she was on a fixed marriage, and I'd be angry too. I made excuses for her. And then I made excuses for my father, who they were the adults in the family. In the fourth step, it came to be the reality of who was the adult and who was the child. And so the fact facing and the fact finding was about being able to say, let's take some of those delusional thoughts, throw those away because they aren't doing any good to you. That is garbage. Let's put in some fresh things. Let's talk about the assets. Let's talk about some of the things. And what are the patterns that you do? So when we go through the, you know, I went through all the resentments, the cause, the effects, talked about it with my sponsor, talked about it. And then she says, okay, let's talk about your part. And then for a while there, I was thinking that I really had a huge part in, in how I grew up. My part was I still lived. As a baby, I lived. That was my part. And she says, no, no, honey, that is not your part. You don't get to take credit for anything that happened before you were 18. You get to take credit for everything that happened after you were 18. And that's where we need to start. So that's what she did, was she had me start there. And it was about being able to, to look at the things of where when I am frightened and I am dishonest and I'm selfish, what are some of the patterns that come up when I do these things? Well, I lie. That's my biggest, that's my biggest go-to. When I am afraid, I will lie. And, and when I was new, when I was uncomfortable, I would shop. I would eat. I would do anything that would make me feel better. And that's what we uncovered in the fourth step, was just being able to know what are my reactions to life and how do my defects go from one end to the other. There is so much material in, in, in this, and, and I uh, wish that there was so much time that I can um, go through and... and um, show you the things that I really, um, that I really, really, that were impactful for me. And, um, and there was these questions in step four in the 12 by 12 that talks about when and how and in just what instances did my selfish pursuit of sex relations damage other people and me? What people were hurt and how badly? Did I spoil my marriage and injure my children? Did I jeopardize my standing in the community? Just how did I react to these situations at the time? Did I burn with a guilt that nothing could extinguish? Or did I insist that I was the pursued and not the pursuer, and thus absolve myself?
So how have I reacted to the frustration to sexual matters? When denied, did I become vengeful and depressed? Did I take it out on other people? There's so many questions here, and my sponsor would have me answer those questions. And the first time, I was like, yes, no, yes, no, yes, 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 no. And she says, I think we need to go deeper than that. <laughs> she didn't think that was funny. So, <laughs> so then, and, and so then that's where we had to really resolutely look for our own mistakes. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? Though the situation had not been entirely our fault, we tried to disregard the other person involved entirely. Where were we to blame? And that's the part where she really stuck with me. And you know, thank goodness for sponsorship because they have to have the patience of Job. It's amazing because they, uh, the things I came up with, oh boy, she <laughs> it, it was challenging, I'm sure. And, and, uh, and, and she used to tell me, do not tell people I am your sponsor. Because I would be the one, hey, that's my sponsor. She's like, no, don't do that. <laughs> and then it was funny because she used to tell me when I got home from a meeting, she'd say, how come I heard you were misbehaving in a meeting? And I said, well, who's telling you? Because isn't what you see here what you hear here stays here? <laughs> she says, apparently not. <laughs> and apparently they think I'm supposed to fix you. I said, ah, oh, sorry, my bad. <laughs> because I, I insisted on having fun in recovery as well. And, and I was a jokester. And sometimes, and that's another thing that happened too, and that is that when I am uncomfortable, I will do things that will make people laugh. And that is that, you know, like in, in a meeting one time, I thought it would be funny. This guy thought his coffee was so valuable, so he, he would uh, have it all topped up. And, and, and at the 12 by 12, they have, sometimes they put fruit out there. And so I saw some plums and I plopped it in his coffee and he didn't see it until later. And then all of a sudden there it was and he was the kind of guy that didn't know how to be quiet about it. And he was just like, holy. And he was just cussing and I was like. <laughs> and then I got in big trouble for that. Because they said that in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, when you're in a meeting, this is serious. This is so serious, this is about life and death. And I had to find the balance, because when we talk about our instincts, finding the balance of when to have fun and when not to have fun or to be serious or to, where is that balance? So I had taken it to the other extreme. I took it to the extreme that, that I realized that I was being harmful to others in the meeting. But I said I was new. Sometimes I get you about this far. And then they say, well, you know, now that you know that that's the wrong thing to do, now you get to do the right thing. So every time I did a lot of wrong things, I had to stop because now I'm accountable because they said, don't do that anymore. So I said, all right. So, so then we uh, reviewed our fears thoroughly. We put them on paper, and even though we had no resentments in connection with them, we asked ourselves why we had them. Wasn't it because self-reliance failed us? Self-reliance was as good as it went, but it didn't go far enough. Some of us once had great self-confidence, but it didn't fully solve the fear problem. 
And you know, it's very interesting because as uh, time has gone by, fear takes, it, it, it comes to me in a different form. I uh, took a new job about two years ago, and do you know that I came, I just came back from vacation, and, and uh, fear came back, and I was like, do you think I should go back to work? Maybe they found something they don't like about me. And, and so those are the kinds of things that go into my head. And then I have to remember what's real and what's imagined. What's real is, is that they emailed me and said, we're, we're looking forward to seeing you. <laughs> what's imagined is, you know, and then my boss had called me and he said that they were going to take one of the programs off my plate. And I was like, oh, I'm not good enough. So, so those are some of the old, those old reels that come in. I'm not good enough. I don't do enough. I'm not enough. So, so those are the things, but the good news is, is that when I first got here, that message was so loud. If you had a stereo that would just crank it up to as high as you possibly can, that's how loud my voices were in my head about not being good enough. And now they are quieter. They have turned down the volume to where it's manageable. And when it's yelling at me, I call my sponsor. And when I can't get a hold of my sponsor, I call my sisters in recovery. Because, see, my sponsor is not someone that's going to be the end-all, be-all to all things. We all have a life. We all have our things that are going on. But thank God for all of the women in this room. Because I have a whole phone list of people, and it tells me who I can call. So, so one of the things that I thought was, uh, so before I go on to five, one of the things that I loved about this is it says, now about sex. <laughs> Many of us needed an overhauling there. But above all, we tried to be sensible on this question. It's so easy to get off track. Here we find human opinions running to extreme, absurd extremes. So one of the things that I used to do is um, I had to say, now about boys. Because sometimes it was about just throwing the cast out there and reeling them in and then throwing them out again. So, so that's the kind of stuff I did. So now I had to say instead now about sex, I'm going to, so the good news with the progress was is I wasn't sleeping with everybody. But the, the bad news is I was still doing some of the same behaviors, seeking, self-seeking behaviors. So I had to then say now about boys. Then once I got, I went through, like my sponsor said, I want you to take a whole year off and not date anybody. So I did that. And, uh, and then it, it, nobody asked me the second year either. So <laughs> it's funny how that goes. I apparently needed to take two years off. But then it was like, well, now about spending. I thought a house was so that you can keep uh, re-upping it and getting cash out so you can go on a trip. That's not how it works. So then it was now about cooking, now about, I mean, anything that I can get obsessed about, I would remember that I needed an overhauling there. So whatever is off balance that is gone to this extreme, 
I need an overhauling and I need to bring it right back over here. And then somewhere in the middle, I will find that balance. But it is one of those things that sometimes the pendulum swings here, smacks it, hits it all the way over here, smacks it, and somewhere it takes a little bit of time. So, so that's the part that I really used for, for that, uh, for that uh, tool for step four. So, so the, the thing that I absolutely loved about, um, well, I loved a lot about step five too. Um, but this is one sentence that it said, we have to talk to somebody about them when it's talking about our experiences. It's in the second paragraph of step five. And <clears throat> because for a while there, I was really thinking that if God is everything and I have him as everything, then he knows everything. And I didn't want to have to tell everything to another human being. So then it was, it was said, we have to. Um, it says, if we skip this vital step, we may not overcome drinking. Time after time, newcomers have tried to keep to themselves certain facts about their lives. Trying to avoid this humbling experience, they have turned to easier methods. Almost invariably, they got drunk. Having persevered with the rest of the program, they wondered why they fell. And that scared me because by now I have really fallen in love with you guys and I did not want to go and I didn't have anywhere. And, and really it's, it's, uh, it's horrifying for me to think that uh, if I stop this right now, I am pretty much guaranteed to go to jail. My husband says, I, I just want to tell you that if you re decide to relapse, you should probably just go right down to the Justice Center, ring the doorbell, and say I'm about ready to break out into stupid. <laughs> it's fair. So, so, uh, so I said, all right. Uh, so we have to. We can't skip that step. And then it says... This practice of admitting one's defect to another person is, of course, very ancient. It has been validated in every, every century, and it's it characterizes the life, the lives of all spiritual-centered and truly religious people. And one of the things that I liked about that sentence is it talks about, there's, there's a part in the big book that talks about how if we don't enlarge our spiritual life, the person who drank the whiskey thought it was a great idea to put whiskey in his milk because he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. That sentence has always daunted me and made me think, okay, I need to continue to enlarge my spiritual life. How do I continue to seek that spiritual life? And so that's one of the things is that this sentence tells me that I will always need to be able to do this. I need to always admit to another person so uh, I had my first sponsor when, uh, for 20 years, and then I uh, found another sponsor, uh, Madeline P., and, um, and, and I started to get to know her. You know, when you're, when you're 20 years in the program and you get a new sponsor, it's like, I don't know what it's like. It's, it's weird. It, you don't have someone that knows you so well from the beginning of time. And, and I had to force myself to get to know her and actually disclose to her so that we can have this relationship and I could be accountable. 
And and uh, one of the things uh, that I did was I started yoga a while ago, and um, when I started going back to yoga and and um, and I had Madeline as my sponsor, I started coveting everybody's yoga mat. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I like that one. And then I like that one. And you know, I'm a little thief, so I have to really, you know, quiet that down. And it wouldn't get quiet. And and so then I, um, I was at the gym, and I was noticing that this one uh, in the Lost and Found yoga mat was there for a long time. So I went up to the counter, and I said, how long are you going to keep that one for? And they said, well, we keep them for 30 days. I said, how long has that been there? And they said, well, I don't know. And so about 30 days later, it was still there. So I said, so can I trade you this yoga mat for that one? Because I like that one better. And the guy at the counter, they don't know. They're, they're not in recovery. They don't really care one way or another what you do with the yoga mat. They said, I don't want yours, and you can have this one. Because they're just trying to get rid of stuff. So then I get this yoga mat, and I'm thinking, OK, this is great. Then I found someone else in the class, and they had this other yoga mat. And then I started realizing the insanity of my thoughts. And I thought, Madeline, she, this was like in our first month of getting together. And, and I said, OK, I'm going to tell you who I really am. And this is how silly I am. And this is a really stupid thing. But I need to tell you so that I could stop with this obsession. So I tell her what I have done with this yoga mat. And I tell her about how I'm covering another yoga mat from the studio. And she's like laughing. <laughs> she is laughing so hard. And, and you know, she's from Texas. So she has that kind of like laugh. And, and then she has that little southern drawl. And she's just like telling me all this stuff. And then I said, I'm telling you because I want to stop this behavior because this is insanity. And she just says, OK. So, so this, is, this is what happens, is when I disclose to another human being the exact nature of my wrong, I get to be free from that thing. And do you know that I haven't had any more yoga mats? <laughs> so so the, the thing that I, um, that I, 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 I put the sticky note here because I thought it was profound, but I, it's a whole page, and I don't know what part was profound. So <laughs> it, it's the whole page. So, so um, let's see here. We pocket our pride and go to it, illuminating every twist of character, every dark cranny of the past. Once we have taken this step withholding nothing, we are delighted. We can look the world in the eye. We can be alone at perfect peace and ease. Our fears fall from us. We begin to feel the nearness of our creator. We may have certain spiritual beliefs, but now we have begun to have a spiritual experience. The feeling that the drink problem has disappeared will often come strongly. We feel we are on the broad highway, walking hand in hand in the spirit of the universe. Just reading that makes me feel at peace. And, and just knowing this, that peace and ease is something that happened when I continued to keep coming back and continue to keep working the steps and continue to enlarge the spiritual life. I'm looking at my clock. Uh, so, so this is the reason why I keep coming back. I'm going to tell you that at the beginning of this path of recovery, it was not my intention to keep coming back. It was my intention to get the tools of what you have and leave. 
And then they said, you know, that's very selfish. I said, well, you said I was selfish and self-centered by nature. And, and, and so uh, they said, well, so my grand sponsor, because she was the, the key factor of why I keep coming back, she, um, she told me, she says, you know, I, I just want you to be able to have the whole thing. I want you to have everything that this program has to offer and what life has to offer. And you didn't come into this world starting the way you did so that you can go out doing nothing. And she said, you just need to keep coming back and you need to keep doing the tools and you need to see where God has, has, has you in mind. And, um, and, and so when we talk about the ease and comfort, I can look at every single one of you and know that I did not steal from you. I can look at you and know that I did not lie to you. I did not try to take your things and help you find it later. <laughs> right? What I used to do. I, I did have that recently where someone was like, they couldn't find something, and it had that old feeling of, I'm going to help you find it, but this time I know I didn't take it. But then it felt like I took it, and I was like having to ask myself, did I take it? <laughs> I didn't. So, so, so that's the kind of thing that, that, that lets me walk this earth and be a worker among workers. Not any better than and not any less than. I am just a human being. I took a job recently, and, um, and, and it, it has the, the word director in it. And, and you know, this is the kind of job that you never direct anyone. <laughs> they kind of tell you what they're not gonna do. This generation of workers, they're like, oh no, I have to go swimming today. All right. I have to have self-care today. All right. So, so, so now this program has given me all the tools on how to be more trauma-informed my, with my employees and know that my job is not to direct. My job is these things with policies and procedures and these are the things that we need to walk towards and how do we do this? So it's the same thing in sponsoring. It's like the people that I have that I work with, I'm not better than they are. I've been tasked with a job to bring you to your higher self. And I'm not gonna do it by telling you that you're not more than, you know, because in the old days, the uh, supervisors, they used to say, well, that you're just kind of, you're kind of stupid, or <laughs> you're not working fast enough, or you're not on time. And, and that never really worked. And so with that experience, these tools teach me how to help us and support us on how to be our higher selves. And we can't become our higher selves if we don't do a full inventory. And if we don't really tell somebody else, I cannot express how invaluable it is to disclose to another human being. So here's this other thing that I highlighted. Green is the, the conference. Uh, this Everything in green is because that was for the conference. I have other yellow and pink for other things, but this is green. So it says I have to read it. Uh, hence, it was most evident that a solitary self-appraisal 
and the admission of our defects based upon that alone wouldn't be nearly enough. We'd have to have outside help if we were surely to know and admit the truth about ourselves, the help of God and another human being. Only by discussing ourselves, holding back nothing, only by being willing to take advice and accept direction, could we see foot on the road to straight thinking, solid honesty, and genuine humility. And because I didn't know whether I was being honest, my first sponsor used to tell me, she says, you are giving me TMI. <laughs> and I said, but it says, if I don't, I, it says holding back nothing. I'm holding back nothing because I have a fear that if I hold back something, I might not be there. So you get everything. And she was like, oh my goodness. <laughs> so, so there is all of these invaluable things. And, and, and so it is my hope um, that if you're new and then you're coming in here, that you hear something that compels you to continue to keep coming back. And, and, and one of the things that I will close with is, is this statement, insanity is and an ability to see the truth, is the inability to see the truth. Sanity is ability to see the truth. An inventory is a tool to enable us to see the truth. The truth will set us free. Thank you.